0: Welcome to a special episode of the Gene Hales podcast, produced with the Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre. Here's your host, Janet Mishelmore. Today we have a very special guest. Associate Professor Nigel Crawford is a consultant paediatrician and vaccine specialist based at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. He is head of immunisation services at the Royal Children's Hospital and a member of the ATAGI COVID-19 Working Group Executive. He's an expert in the vaccination of special risk groups. So we're talking to him today about the impact of the vaccine on women. Over the last few weeks, we asked our audience what they needed to know about the vaccine and what they found confusing. In this interview, Nigel will provide clear answers to those questions. Please enjoy my interview with Associate Professor Nigel Crawford. Nigel, we're incredibly grateful for your time today. Before we begin with the listener questions, could you address two areas of confusion in the feedback? The first one is, what does a vaccination rate of 80 to 90% mean? Does it mean that nearly everyone is vaccinated? Could you clarify that for us?
1: Thanks, Janet. So just to clarify, what they mean by the vaccination coverage depends on what age you are. And essentially... People will recall there was some modeling that was discussed by the Doherty, was in the media months ago, thinking about how much coverage we need to be protected as a community before we start to consider opening up, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria. And that decision was made that 16 plus was going to be the age group. So when we talk about 80 to 90% of the population, we're talking those that are 16 years of age and older. And people will recall, we started with those priority groups, including the elderly and residential aged care very early on. And now we've gone down through the age groups and it's that 16 plus and over. So that means that we're not counting the 12 to 15 year olds at the moment for which the two vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna are licensed for. And just to let listeners know, we're actually going really well in that age group. So even though they're not being counted, the latest numbers here in Victoria, that 75% of that age group, 12 15, have had a single dose and 24% two doses. So it's fantastic, fantastic as we news. progress. And overall in the country, we've got 85% had their first dose and 70% fully vaccinated of that 16 plus. So even if we start to merge in that 12 and over, we're, we're looking really good in terms of our coverage.
0: Nigel, it's such great news that 80 to 90% of the community are vaccinated. But in practical terms, when I quickly try to do the maths, how many people does that mean are not
1: vaccinated? So we need to be clear that those numbers is for the the 16 plus. So it means that we're not counting the younger age groups at the moment. And even those those that are over 16 plus, if we hit 90%, for example, we want to get even higher than that, that still leaves 10% of the population not vaccinated. So if that's 23 million Australians, that 2.3 million are then not protected. So it is still a significant number of people and we know that that may not be evenly spread across the community. That may be some that are more vulnerable to vaccination, acknowledging we're getting to higher numbers, particularly in the the elderly and those in residential aged care facilities, which are a crucial group to keep protected. So again, I think you're right, that the numbers can be tricky because everyone thinks 90% the job is done, where in actual fact, we need to keep pushing to those higher numbers to get as many people protected as possible.
0: My next one is something that I've heard a lot in the community. We don't have 10 years worth of research into the vaccine and we know that's not possible. So right now, what do we know about the safety of the vaccine?
1: So Janet, I think the important thing to flag here is that it's not just about the time we've been monitoring vaccines, it's the way that we've been doing it. And none of the steps or process have been skipped. In terms of the clinical trials, they followed through the standard phases of the trials in terms of how they look at the vaccines in different populations, decide what the best formulation is. And what's called the phase three trial is big clinical trials. People might remember Operation Warp Speed in the United States. That was over thirty to 40,000 individuals went into trials, half got the vaccine, half got a placebo, which means no vaccine. And they monitored How they went, both in terms of the safety. So, what side effects did they talk about and how efficacious or how well the vaccine was working in that population, which obviously in the United States had a huge number of cases as well as the UK, we started to get some data. So, really important studies have been done right at the outset in in big numbers. And then since then, we've not just given millions of doses, we've given hundreds of millions of doses. So, while we might not have had 10 years of experience, In a pandemic, in less than a year, we've given millions more doses than we ever would have done for some of our routine immunizations, for example. So we're really well set up in terms of monitoring for those adverse events, which is what's called a phase four study. So we're looking at the vaccines once they go into the population. And that was as part of the vaccine preparing. We're ready to do that, including our our group Safe here in Victoria, but also nationally through the TGA, which is a name many of your audience may have heard of where their job is to actively look for any reports of particularly serious adverse events that are happening post the vaccine. And TAGI's been meeting weekly, which is the advisory group to government on vaccines around the safety. The TGA is meeting weekly with the jurisdictions to go through those cases. And they're both putting public statements, which you can share with your listeners, around the safety of the vaccines in our millions of Australians who have received them, as we discussed, four and 12 and over. So The key thing is to say, while it's not 10 years, it's a really robust system, which we use for other vaccines. This is not a new thing. We did it for all of the vaccines on the routine immunization schedule, including in children. And importantly for this call, listeners, influenza and whooping cough vaccines have been given in pregnancy for a long time now and been actively monitored in terms of safety signals. So we've got robust systems in place, which we've just expanded and done better essentially as we've rolled out these products.
0: Nigel, thank you for that incredibly comprehensive answer. As you know, we've had over 5,000 questions submitted to us. And one of those questions is, is it safe for pregnant women to have the vaccine?
1: So starting with the big questions, Janet, and I know of those 5,000, you know, lots of this would have been on, on a similar theme. And I think it's a really important question because anytime we administer vaccines in pregnancy, we're thinking both of obviously, the pregnant woman and their child and then the impact on their family. So I totally acknowledge that this is a, a discussion for two individuals, which, which adds a layer of complexity. And also one of the things which was a difficulty with the trials I mentioned before, Operation Warp Speed, these big clinical trials in the United States didn't include pregnant women. Now, that's probably, we're going to have a separate podcast around investigations or studies into pregnant women, but unfortunately, we didn't have any of that trial data. But we did have, again, hundreds of thousands of of uh, women, particularly in the United States, who received the mRNA vaccine. So again, for the listeners, these are the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines now in Australia, have been used extensively in the United States. I think it's over 370 million doses of those two products have been administered in the in the US, and there have been hundreds of thousands of women who've received them and and they managed to follow them up, as I mentioned before, some of that active surveillance. They actually were doing text messaging to people who'd received the vaccine, including pregnant women, and they followed them up comprehensively. And over 35,000 women were in a New England Journal of Medicine, which is obviously one of the big medical journals studied, where they followed up these women and showed that the safety profile in terms of the immediate side effects were very similar to non-pregnant women, which is important. So we know the general response to these vaccines tends to be a little bit more with the second dose, but their systemic symptoms, maybe a sore arm, a bit of temperature, and feeling a bit unwell, was was the same, which was important. And also, they followed up over 800 pregnancies and showed that there was no difference in terms of complications such as prematurity or stillbirths or congenital problems in the babies compared to those you know that we would see in the in the population more broadly. So, again, while it wasn't part of a clinical trial, the United States in particular was very proactive at at following up women and, and publishing this information, which has been really helpful for us to give some guidance here in Australia.
0: So I'm sticking with the big topic, and that is what time during a pregnancy should women get the vaccine?
1: So essentially, the short answer is any time. People might recall, say, for whooping cough, for example, there was recommendations around the timing of the vaccines a bit later in the pregnancy to try and maximise the protection for the infant, because particularly for around whooping cough, we were looking at protecting the baby. While adults can get whooping cough, they tend to not get so sick, but the small infants are the ones, particularly in those first few months of life, that can get really sick and, and potentially die from whooping cough. So there was very much a timing in pregnancy, where for COVID-19, it's different. We know we're going to start to open up and there's a risk of exposure and the virus will circulate throughout the whole country. So essentially, any time in pregnancy is fine. And if you're thinking about the vaccine, then this is a time to go and get it. Uh, Don't wait for a certain time or certain weeks of your pregnancy to, to make that decision.
0: So I think you've been very clear about that message. Don't wait, just do it. I don't want to talk about a grim part of the virus, but I do think we need to hear about what could happen to a pregnant woman and their child if, in fact, they get COVID-19.
1: If you develop COVID-19 during pregnancy, you are more likely to end up in hospital, about five times more likely. You're more likely to end up in intensive care units than if those that, that aren't pregnant of the same age, and you're more likely to need breathing support if you do develop COVID. So they're pretty significant numbers and risks. And again, reflecting on previous pandemics, the h one one N1 influenza pandemic in, in 2010, again taking back a, a decade for, for many of us, lots of pregnant women did end up in ICU and actually we were running short of intensive care beds for pregnant women at that time. So, certainly the risk during pregnancy of if you do have COVID is significant. That clearly then has impacts for the baby because you end up in hospital and in ICU, the risk of there being a premature baby is around one and a half times um, more likely and that baby may need to go to the newborn intensive care unit about three times more likely. So again, just giving you some numbers to kind of think about, and there's documents we can share, but there's definitely risks associated with COVID-19 infection, both for the mother and the baby, and that's what we're trying to prevent through through vaccination.
0: Nigel, can you just briefly explain to me why are pregnant women vulnerable to COVID-19?
1: So there's different factors that that are believed to be playing a role here, and they have sort of teased out some of the the groups that are a bit more likely to end up in hospital. So it does appear to be age is a factor and age is a factor in COVID more broadly. So as everyone would know, we talked again a bit before about the ages, but essentially your risk of getting sick and and getting into hospital, regardless of pregnancy, goes up every decade of life, particularly over 50. So that's for the whole population. And they've also shown for pregnancy that those that are over 35 are more likely to end up in, in hospital. So again, not trying to scare or have grim stories, as you mentioned, but definitely there, there does seem to be an increased risk. Those that are significantly overweight is a risk. And again, we've seen that through all different groups, including in adolescents, for example, more likely to become unwell with COVID than, than those that are not overweight. So significant overweight is, is something to be aware of. And also pre-existing problems, such as problems with high blood pressure or diabetes, also seem to be important in, in pregnant women. So there's definitely factors that are related to that. And some of those you can't modify or do anything about clearly. So it's just about being aware of those risks and really supporting vaccination to try and protect those that are most vulnerable.
0: What happens to an unworn baby when the mother is vaccinated? Does it mean then the baby's vaccinated?
1: So again, that's a a really good question. Again, we could go right into the sort of immunology of, of vaccines. But essentially what we're talking about here is the baby's not vaccinated in the sense that it's not Producing its own immune response. Because essentially, to be vaccinated in the term that we normally mean is that you have the two doses, you produce antibody, but you also have what's called immune memory, which is longer term protection. So, even four, five, six out to eight months later, we're showing that these vaccines are still really effective at stopping people going to hospital and intensive care. But that's because of that immune memory that's been generated. Now, the baby can't generate immune memory from that transfer through the placenta to the baby, but they do get what's called passive immunization or passive immunity, because that antibody that the mother produces goes through to the the baby. And that'll definitely protect them in the first few months of life, which is crucial. So as I mentioned, the mother becoming sick clearly has implications for the baby, but the baby when they're born will then have some antibody. If they did unfortunately get exposed in those first few months, they would then have some protection and be less likely to end in, in hospital. And that's similar to how flu and whooping cough vaccines also work in pregnancy. So that's the mechanism of protection for the baby.
0: So in summary, what you're saying, if a pregnant woman gets vaccinated, she's very much protecting her unborn child.
1: Absolutely. So she's protecting herself from becoming unwell, which again, I think is really the key message here. But there is definitely protection through to the baby as well, which will continue, in, as mentioned, once the baby's born and into those first few months of life. The vaccine trials that, that are sort of going down if the ages, we touched earlier on the 12 and over, that the next lot of trials that are coming in the 5 to 11-year-olds, so the primary school age children are currently being trialled with these mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And later this month, we're expecting the FDA in the United States to review that five to 11-year-old data in the infants. And they will be going younger, but the youngest we've heard, they're going down to six months of age. They're not planning on doing their direct vaccine into those smaller babies. So we will really be relying on that maternal protection. So the mother being vaccinated to protect the baby in that first six months of life and those around them, the rest of the family as well should also be vaccinated if they are 12 and over, which is an important message for for your listeners.
0: Can we now go to breastfeeding? Does the same apply to breastfeeding? Is the vaccine passed through the milk?
1: So the way to think about this again relates to that that immunity and the antibody that's transferred, but maybe touch a little bit on the the mRNA. So people hear about mRNA vaccines, which is the the Moderna vaccine and Pfizer is Cominati. So again, some longer names uh, that can be hard to recall, and I know we can obviously send some listeners some details around brands and the names. So essentially, they're, they're the, of this mRNA platform, and they're essentially carrying the spike protein, which is the part of the virus that you need to get antibodies against to be protected. So the mRNA, so you think mRNA DNA, you think it's sort of inserting things into your genes and something's going to happen longer term, which is where I think lots of the concerns come from. But it, it's not doing that. It's just carrying the spike protein, and it's delivering it through this mRNA platform. So you can produce that antibody, but that's not going to be long standing. That gets broken down in the pregnant woman. And we don't believe it's being transferred through to the breast milk, but even if it was, it would be broken down in the gut. But some antibody can transfer in the breast milk, we believe. So that's, if you are breastfeeding, clearly very supportive of that. And there will be some potential protection for that antibody to be transmitted in the breast milk.
0: Which is additional protection and good news, surely.
1: Absolutely good news. So again, obviously all the other benefits of breast milk, again, with my paediatrician hat, very supportive of that, I'm sure, through Gene Hales, you know, in terms of breastfeeding more broadly for the other benefits, but definitely that antibody transfer is, is an additional one.
0: Let's talk about another category of women, and that is those who are trying to get pregnant or are thinking about a pregnancy in the future. Many of those women, we've had feedback from them that they're scared. What do we know about the impact of vaccines on fertility?
1: So this is, again, a question that's been discussed very broadly, I know, amongst lots of the experts. So I know the Obstetrician and Gynaecology Society has, again, with, with ATAGI, come up with some advice to discuss this. And I think uniformly, there's no concerns that these vaccines are impacting on fertility. And there's no sort of biological sort of plausible mechanism that's been flagged that would raise that concern. And there have been some animal studies, both with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, looking at the impact on fertility in in those studies, acknowledging there's some limitations and no concerns have been identified. So essentially, the the short answer is no, we don't believe there's any impact of these vaccines on fertility. We don't recommend a pregnancy test or doing things before you have the vaccines if you're in that planning phase. So we're very supportive of the vaccine in that setting. And the only other comment I make, again, I I like to reflect on other vaccines because, again, I want people to think of COVID as a vaccine that's coming through, but not something that's different to what we've seen before. And and the human papilloma virus vaccine, or HPV, when we first rolled it out, we gave it to 12 to 26-year-olds. It's now just given in that year seven time point. Lots of concerns then around pregnancy and ovarian failure and other issues and really robust reviews in Europe and the US and also in Australia, where we looked into this question, showed no evidence that these vaccines were impacting on fertility, acknowledging they'll be given in an age group we give it now to males and females in that, that age group of Year 7, so sort of 12 to 13 years of age, and no concerns around longer-term impact on fertility. So this question has been flagged with other vaccines, including COVID, and we don't believe there's any impact there.
0: Another piece of feedback we've had from women is that they're experiencing heavy or disrupted periods after having the vaccine, and they're concerned that this will impact their fertility. Is this a recognised side effect?
1: So the first comment I'd like to make is this is definitely something we need to acknowledge. So I think the fact that women are reporting these symptoms and changes in their periods is, is really important. And as you mentioned, it does then flag, does that relate to, to impact on fertility? A short answer is that again, our gynecology colleagues are very reassuring around this, this changes. I don't believe that's impacting on fertility. And there have been some small studies looking at those hormonal changes in pregnancy. Again, it's, it's small numbers so we can share the, the links with the audience around that research. But it had showed that some had longer periods, some had shorter, so that, as you mentioned, it, it, it can go both ways, both in terms of duration and, and heaviness. No clear evidence that there's impact on the ovarian hormones or any significant changes. And we don't believe that these mRNA vaccines are likely to impact on the ovaries or testes. Also for male fertility also comes in the into this discussion with your partner. So we have been aware of these concerns but not aware of any evidence suggests that this is an issue and maybe just one last thing to reflect on again this has come through our gynecology colleagues is that the pandemic itself has been stressful and can impact on your periods and and the timing and duration and things that happen and there has been some research for example done in Japan so Fukushima when they had their nuclear disaster was clearly a very traumatic time for that whole population and again showed some changes in the menstrual cycle over that time. So I think a lot of us have been through stress and it has been a very stressful couple of years for lots of people. And it's possible that that's played a role also in this menstrual irregularity. But we certainly have been reviewing that. The TGA has also mentioned it in its national reports on vaccine safety and it is being closely monitored internationally. So again, just acknowledging it's a really important question and something we need to keep understanding.
0: So Nigel, in summary, there's no evidence that the vaccine has damaged the ovaries or will in fact in the future damage the ovaries. Is that correct?
1: Yes, Janice, that's correct. There's no evidence that the vaccines that we're talking about, the mRNA vaccines are impacting on the ovaries, both short and and medium term.
0: Related to that question, Nigel, is that we've heard so many stories of women reporting sore breasts, swollen breasts, et cetera, after the vaccine. Is this a common side effect?
1: So this again has been reported and I think again it's important to acknowledge maybe that may in part be related to changes in your menstrual cycle. So often there can be some changes so we need to kind of consider some of those changes in terms of sore or swollen breasts in relation to that. One thing that we definitely have seen with the mRNA vaccines is something called lymphadenopathy or swelling under the arms. Not the breasts themselves on the side where you get the vaccine normally given into your upper arm. You can get a swelling of the lymph node in your armpit essentially, which has been seen with the mRNA vaccines, including Pfizer and Moderna. So that's something that we definitely would like to hear reported to the, the vaccine safety services around Australia, including the TGA and something that we're monitoring, but it does settle down and completely recover. But the last comment I'd make on this though, is it's also important not to dismiss any concerns that you may have. So while you might be talking about swollen or discomfort breasts, if you felt an abnormal lump or Something that was atypical on, on that examination, don't, don't dismiss it and, and put it down to the vaccine. That needs to be taken seriously and followed up with your GP or your, your obstetrician, gynecologist, if you're seeing them as, as part of a consultation. Because we know the pandemic has had a big impact on people presenting with these other issues, breast cancer, obviously other things, just calling it out as something we want to pick up quickly and, and manage appropriately. So while it's possible there may be some of these symptoms, they're generally seen within the first couple of weeks post the vaccine. and. We certainly wouldn't want people to be dismissing some of those other important women's health issues in the setting of the vaccine. You need to see your GP and get it checked out.
0: I think you've given us all a very clear message about not dismissing any side effects and go to see your GP. We've got a number of frequently asked questions that have been posted to our website. But just to finish off, I'm really keen to hear from you. What are the three key things that you want women to know about the vaccine?
1: All right, so that's great. I can give my top three. So the, the first one is that it's safe. So I think that's the key thing in terms of a vaccine coming to mark. And I mentioned the millions of doses being given, but at the end of the day, you have to make an individual decision for you to have the vaccine and it's, it's safe, but it's safe both for women and babies. So I think we need to say that it's safe on, on both of those levels is, is really important. The second key one is that these vaccines are effective. So. To be honest, it's actually amazing that we've got to this point now in the pandemic where we have multiple vaccines that are still holding out, as I mentioned during the discussion, six to eight months still preventing people going to hospital and ICU, but also preventing transmission and the impact of the virus. So I think we definitely have effective vaccines is a really important message for your listeners. And the third one is we're doing a great job at our coverage and getting big proportion of our population protected. And I think we talked right at the start about the 80% and 70% and all of these markers, but we can't stop there. Let's crack on and get the highest level that we can. And as I mentioned, we're, we're getting up into those close to 90% first dose, but we need to get over to ideally 90%, 95% to that broader coverage, bring that down to the, the 12 and over. And that's the way we come out to a new COVID normal. So I think this is the passport into that COVID normal, and we really need to get that coverage. That includes pregnant women, and that's a really important group, as we've discussed, to, to be protected both for them and their babies. So I'll, I'll stop there.
0: Nigel, thank you for providing such clear guidance for women about the safety and also the safety to their unborn child. Thank you. I found Nigel clear and reassuring, and I hope that he has answered all of your questions. This is not the end of the conversation and we will be following up with more information when children are eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. Thank you for listening. For more FAQs and links to the government's shared decision-making guide for women who are pregnant, breastfeeding or planning pregnancy, go to genehales.org.au. For up to date immunisation information for healthcare professionals, parents, and the public, visit the Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre or MVEC at mvec.mcri.edu.au.